in harmony. We'll, we'll sing together. And we'll get to look at you while we do it. We'll sing about you, to you. What a great day that's going to be. We'll worship you with a perfect body, with a, a, with, without sin in our hearts or lives. Lord, today as we're here, awaiting for that day of your return, help us, Lord, to commit that we're going to live our lives by your grace. Lord, I pray the message today would make sense and resonate in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. What does it mean to give? What does it mean to give? Well, give is defined in the dictionary this way, to present voluntarily and without expecting compensation, bestow. To present voluntarily and without expecting compensation, to bestow. So, you're giving something to someone means there are no strings attached. You give something to someone and you just give it to them because you want to be a help or a blessing to the other person. I found an article this week in Time magazine. And I got to tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of Time magazine. But this uh, article here, boy, it sure is chucked full of a Judeo-Christian ethic, a Judeo-Christian truth. And that is the truth of giving. And I want to read the article for you. And uh, this is the one point of the message I'm going to ask you to pay attention on purpose. Once I get through the article, I'll do my best to keep your attention, but uh, really focus in on what the article says. It says, it doesn't take a neuroscientist to know that doing nice things for people feels good. But now researchers say they've discovered that even thinking about doing something generous has real mood boosting benefits in the brain. In a new study published in Nature uh, Communications, researchers of the University of Zurich in Switzerland told 50 people they'd be receiving about $100 over a few weeks. Half of the people were asked to commit to spending that money on themselves, and half were asked to spend it on someone they knew. The researchers wanted to see whether simply pledging to being generous was enough to make people happier. So before uh, 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 giving out any money, uh, they brought everyone into the lab and asked them to think about a friend they'd like to give a gift to and how much they would hypothetically spend. Then they performed functional MRI scans to measure activity in three regions of the brain associated with social behavior, generosity, happiness, and decision-making. Their choices and their brain activity seemed to depend on how they had pledged to spend the money earlier. Those who had agreed to spend money on other people tended to make more generous decisions throughout the experiment compared to those who had agreed to spend on themselves. They also had more interaction between the parts of the brain associated with altruism and happiness, and they reported higher levels of happiness after the experiment was over. Another piece of good news was that it didn't seem to matter how generous people were. Planning to give away just a little bit of money had the same effect on happiness as giving away a lot of money. At least in our study, the amount spent did not matter, said lead author Felipe Tobler, associate professor of neuroeconomics and social neuroscience in an email. It is worth keeping in mind that even little things have a beneficial effect, like bringing coffee to one's office mate in the morning. It's not yet clear how long these warm and fuzzy feelings last 
after being generous. But other research suggests that making generosity a regular habit may influence long term well-being and happiness. The study author says, and I would pause there and say it's neat when science catches up to the Bible. Studies have shown that older people who are generous tend to have better health, says Tobler. And uh, other research has indicated that spending money on others can be as effective as lowering blood pressure. Uh, it can be as, as effective at lowering blood pressure as medication or exercise. Moreover, there is a positive association between helping others in life expectancy. He adds, perhaps uh, uh, helping others reduces stress. The research, the researchers wonder, however, whether the feel good effect of generosity can be dampened by deliberate attempts to take advantage of it. In other words, by expecting personal gains from uh, performing selfless acts. Still, the new study uh, suggests that making a pledge to do generous things could be a useful way to reinforce altruistic behavior and even make people happier, says Tobler. It is known that actually helping others and being generous to them increases happiness, he says. I would still consider that the primary route to boost happiness. However, making a commitment to help others is a first step to follow through. Next time that you uh, next time you think that the best way to make yourself feel better is to buy yourself a treat, consider that the opposite is likely true. It is worth giving it a shot, even if you think it would not work, Tobler says. In order to reap health benefits, repeated practice is probably needed so that giving becomes second nature. And I can prove this is true to all of you parents in the room who have or had uh, small children in your house or have given a gift away at Christmas time. How many of you here agree with me as a parent or, or just as a friend? Watching someone open your gift is more fun than opening your own gift. How many of you agree with that statement? Okay, giving is better than receiving. And I got to tell you, there are times where I don't always feel that way. There are times where I'm a little down in the dumps and I'll say, well, maybe if I go out and buy myself a cup of coffee or I get this little treat for myself, I'll be happier. And the truth is that I know that's not true, that if I'll do for others and I'll give to others, then I'll uh, be a happier, uh, happier person. Filled with more joy from a biblical perspective, giving to others and to a greater cause bigger than ourselves makes us happy because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, think about that. God has made it his life mission to give to give. He gives all the time. He gives unexpectedly. Uh, he gives uh, with no strings attached. He gives and he gives and he gives. And you know what he mostly gets back? He gets back our sin and our grief. <laughs> but he just keeps on giving. And you know why I believe God is a happy God? God is a happy God because God is a gracious God that gives and gives and gives. And you and I, according to Genesis, were made in his image and in his Likeness, And so if giving makes God happy, then giving uh, makes us happy. So what should we give to the Lord? We should give to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what he has so graciously given to us. 
I talked about this for, uh, right at the end of my Sunday school lesson this morning. But uh, God, everything that we have, everything we have is a gift from God. Everything. The clothes you're wearing, the car you rode in today, if you own it, your name's on the title. Really, God owns that. He just lets you have your name on that title. That house you own, uh, God owns that. He just lets you, uh, he's given you the ability to go buy it. The children that I'm raising belong to the Lord. My wife belongs to the Lord. Your spouse belongs to the Lord. And everything I have, everything that you have belongs to the Lord. That includes the talents that I have. I think it's hilarious when you see an athlete uh, do something incredible on a sports field or court and they will point at the back of their jersey. They're pointing at their name. We've all seen that, right? And uh, they're making a big deal out of themselves. And what I want to do is walk up to them and smirk out a little bit and say, you know who gave you those abilities, right? God did. How about you give him the credit? You may be really good at your job. You may be the best in your office or your uh, line of employment. Uh, You may be the best contractor in town. You may be the smoothest talker. Uh, You might be a uh, or or otherwise known as a lawyer. You might be a good doctor. Uh, I don't know what it is that you do, uh, but whatever you're able to do, God gave you those abilities. If you're saved here today, you're born again, then after you become a Christian, uh, the Bible teaches in the New Testament that he gives on top of your talents, he gives you a spiritual gift. And some of you may have no idea what your spiritual gift is. I would encourage you to dive in the Bible and find out what that is. And uh, sometimes when uh, we get saved and we get those spiritual gifts, boy, that enhances our abilities at work. And we use our spiritual gifts uh, in ways that promote our own good, that promote our own wealth or promote our own status or our own fame. But we don't use the spiritual gift for what it was given to us for. And that is to grow in the Lord and better the house of God and the people of God. Everything we have belongs to God, including our time. Our time belongs to God. We all, there are some of you here today that are thousands of dollars in debt. There are others of you here today that have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars saved in the bank. And there's everything in between. And we could, uh, if we were able to know who had what, who owned what, what people's value was or what their debt ratio was, we could, we would never do this, we could line everybody up from wealthiest to poorest. And I would tell you this, that while there might be a difference in financial status in the room, uh, by the way, just because someone looks poor doesn't mean they are. And just because someone lives rich doesn't mean they are. Oftentimes, people that live rich are deep uh, up to their ears in debt. Right. Uh, so you can't judge a book by its cover. But there's one area where we're all equally rich. Did you know that when you when uh, when midnight hit the clock? Uh, let's see, just a few hours ago that we all came into this week having a hundred and sixty eight hours to work with all of us. We all were we all were rich in time at the same amount. There's no difference between the person who utilizes that time uh, in a way that brings themselves wealth or fame uh, or or uses that to give to others and the, and someone who is lazy and does nothing with their life or goes nowhere. 
the, the CEO of the largest company in America, I guess Jeff, Jeff Bezos, would be uh, the, the, Amazon, uh, the Amazon CEO. And he's probably, I think he is the wealthiest, wealthiest man walking the planet. He has just as many hours in the, day as you, uh, in the day and in the week as you do. And I do. And you can give away money and you can get it back. But if you give away your time, you can't get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. And what we do with our time matters. And our time is a gift from God. If you say, no, it's not, then I would say God can take away the air that you breathe. He can drop you dead. And then time ceases to matter to a dead person. God gives us our time. God created time. And uh, the one that probably everyone thought of when they saw the title, and we'll look at a little bit today, but I want to make sure everyone's clear. When I'm preaching on giving this morning, I will spend some time talking about financial giving, but I want it to be clear that generically, broadly, I'm talking about not just giving of your time, but or not just giving of your money, but giving of your time and giving of your abilities to the Lord. And the last one here is our finances. Uh, it is easy for us to think that the money we have is our money. One mistake that I see a lot of uh, married couples make is one of the two goes to work and is the breadwinner. The other one might hold down a part time job or uh, no job at all. Maybe they just work around the house and they help with the children or, or whatnot. And you'll see the breadwinner come home and say, my money. And I always tell married couples, no, 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 no. What is yours belongs to the other one. Do you want to know my opinion on couples having uh, uh, different bank accounts? I think you can probably figure it out. Uh, and if that's your setup and it's worked for you for years, again, I preface that with my opinion. Okay, The Bible doesn't say thou shalt have a joint bank account. It's not in there. All right? uh, but uh, so run with what the Bible says. You don't have to run with what I say. But I do believe that two should become one. Two should become one. And uh, what is my money is Angela's money. And what's Angela's money is my money. And we we share in our lives together. Here's something for you to realize is that we say, well, Lord, here is your money I'm putting in the offering plate and the rest belongs to me. And that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Every penny that I own truthfully belongs to God. And he allows Angela and I to steward that money. And I am going to give an account to God one day for uh, Angela. And I both will give an account to God one day for how we handled that money. Now, if you own it, no matter what it is, God gave it to you. And if he asks for a portion of it back, whether that's your time, your abilities or your finances, then you should be willing to give it to him, not begrudgingly. But cheerfully, cheerfully. Turn over to First John chapter 3 and verse number 1 uh, for our introduction this morning. I want to show you this verse. Let me build up to it here. I propose that grace giving fits right in line with being a child of God. You cannot be a gracious person and not give. Another way to put this is you can give without grace. But you cannot have grace and not give. I'm, I'm kind of borrowing from the phrase, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Okay? And I think grace is an even more profound thought than love, because grace continues to give even when, the, when love is not felt. And where do we learn this example of, 
of, of we must give if we're living our life by grace. Well, we learn it from Jesus Christ himself. Look at first John chapter three, verse one. Beloved, what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now, let's stop and think about this. We have been called the sons of God. Now, we were the enemies of God. And we've been made the sons of God. That's grace. That's total grace. We looked at grace last week and we defined it both the morning and the evening service. And I don't have the definition right here in my notes in front of me. But the idea is that you're giving something good to someone when they deserved the opposite. And that's exactly what happened. You remember way, way back in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit, if you all eat that fruit, ye shall surely die. They ate the fruit and they died within. Their relationship with God was cut off and separated. That word death means separation. And they were condemned, or the biblical word, a word of damnation, they were condemned or damned to hell. And uh, and Jesus, I believe Jesus looked at mankind and he looked at God and he said, God, I know you love mankind and I love mankind and I will not allow my love to just be an emotion that's felt. It's going to be an action that's expressed. And Jesus said, I will go down to that planet. I will become one of them. I will die up on a cross in their place. I will absorb your wrath in my body. I will suffer for them so that you can have a reconciled relationship with them. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be made one with God in heaven and have that relationship renewed. It wasn't enough for God to say, theoretically, I believe in grace. No, His grace was so powerful that it drove Him to a place to give. And what did He give? He gave His life on a cross. He gave it all. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. There's an old song that uh, was sung as a special in churches for years. I'm sure at some point in the history of this church it's been sung. But it, the, the words to the chorus say, He could have called 10,000 angels. You all know the song? But He died alone for you and me. Any point when Jesus was going through that crucifixion, He could have said, Enough! I want down! But he didn't. He stayed up there because he had to complete his work of dying on the cross so that he could give to us eternal life. He gave his life to buy eternal life. Now he sits in heaven after he rose from the dead and he extends, he gives his gracious eternal life to each one who will open their heart by faith and receive it. What is grace giving? Well, grace giving is understand that I took from God to be saved. I take from God every day of my life. The air I breathe, the food I eat, the clothes I wear, the job I work and the paycheck that comes with it, uh, the family relationships that I have, whether they struggle along or not. Everything I have is a gift from God. I take and I take and I take and I take 
from the grace of God. And I don't want to be a Dead Sea Christian. I don't want to just have where it comes in. But I also need to turn around and I need to give back out. I am saved by grace. I grow by grace. And I must turn around and give to others by grace. That is what being a grace-giving Christian is. Hey, we're going to hop in the outline this morning. We're going to look at four principal thoughts as we consider the generosity of God's grace and consider closely this topic of grace giving. Now, on the back of your bulletin, there is a spot to take notes. I would encourage you to get your pen out. The notes, the points will be on the screen as they are every week and uh, write these down as we go. Notice number one, our surrender to grace living, our surrender to grace living. Last week, we took uh, the morning and the evening message to emphasize the grace of the New Testament, the grace of the New Testament. And we talked about how that the Old Testament was a book of laws, a book of laws. And the New Testament came along and was a testament or a group of books about God's grace. And the Old Testament, God the Father is described over and over again as being a God of mercy and truth. Mercy is just the forgiving of sins, but not the pouring on of grace. There are examples of grace in the Old Testament, but for the most part, it is a book of mercy and truth. The New Testament is a book that ups uh, what the Christian or the believer uh, in God and Christ Jesus, the Messiah, receives. And it is a book of grace and truth. And Jesus is epitomized that same way. Now, if you're going to surrender to grace living, then you must first look at the person that epitomizes and is our example for living by grace. Letter A, notice a Christ-like choice. A Christ-like choice. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, the four Gospels are there to show us a different uh, aspect of God's uh, of, of Jesus Christ, God the Son being on earth. And the book of John, the point of the book is to show that Jesus is God. He is king. He is God. Rather, he's God. Matthew is he's king. Uh, I believe Mark is he's a servant. Luke is he's a man. And then John is he is God. And so uh, both king and servant, uh, uh, man and God. And he's 100% of all four of those. But John opens up his book paralleling Genesis 1 with John 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1, John 1. Uh, uh, see, I don't have the John 1 1 right here in front of me. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Uh, by Him were all things created. Uh, Something some along those lines. Uh, John 1, 1 through 3. And without Him, uh, anyway, you get the idea. John 1, 1 through 3 matches Genesis 1, 1 through 3 and shows that Jesus was in the beginning with God, creating the worlds, and that Jesus is God. Now, look down at verse number 14. It says, and the Word, that, that letter W is capitalized, that's a proper now, meaning it's a name, and it's a name for Jesus. And the Word was made flesh, speaking of the incarnation or the birth of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Okay, now that parenthesis is very important. That parenthesis is setting up to tell us what Jesus' glory is. What are the things that we Worship that we adore, that we hold to. Well, look here, full of grace and truth. Jesus, our example, lived a life 
of giving grace. Look down at verse 17. For the law was given by Moses. That's the Old Testament. But grace and truth, that's the New Testament, came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life of a perfect balance of grace and truth. Let me give you one quick example here. Do you remember the story where the the woman was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus? They brought her, and, and I've heard people speculate and say that she was set up, probably, right? I mean, the, if you read about the Pharisees, they were pretty maniacal people. So they bring this lady caught in adultery, and they throw her down in front of Jesus, and they've got blood in their eyes, and they're all holding rocks in their hands, and they say, Moses says that if someone commits adultery, they should be stoned. And Jesus kneels down and starts to ride in the sand, as if he was ignoring them. And then they said, hey, what do you say, Jesus? And he stands up and he says, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all begin to lay their stones down and leave. Jesus knelt down and wrote wrote back in the sand. And I've heard it speculated that he was writing their names and sin in the sand. I don't know if that was the case or not, but um, that would help them put their stones down pretty quick, right? Ooh, he's going to get to me eventually. I'm out of here. So um, they put their stones down and they left. Jesus stood up and he looked and it was just the woman. And what did he tell her? He said, thy sins are forgiven. Do you know what that is? That's grace. Then he said to her, go and sin no more. You know what that is? That's truth. That's a balance of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, that's what we've been called to live. A Christian that won't forgive someone else that's wronged them is a Christian who has not surrendered to grace living. If you have hardened your heart through pride and you're not going to give God's grace out to others, it may just be God's going to shut off the valve of His grace to you. There's so much to gain by living, uh, uh, by, by living in this system of God's grace. You get it, and then you turn around and you give it, just like Jesus did. If you're here today and you have aught between a brother and Christ, let me encourage you, before you leave today, if that person's here, go to them and say, listen, we, we may not be able to work through all of our differences, but we can forgive each other and we can coexist within the same church. Uh, it might be someone in your family. And you know what? Uh, I would say that uh, you don't have to wait for someone to be repentant before you forgive them. I hope you hear me on this. Do you know that Joseph forgave his brothers years before they were contrite? He just forgave them. You be you do yourself a lot of good to forgive. You know, Jesus had already forgiven you of your sin before you ever came to him. Now, your sins weren't going to be taken off your record till you came to him and you put your faith in him. But the willingness to forgive you was there a long time before you came to him. That's an example we ought to follow. A, a Christ-like choice. Letter B, a considerable change. A considerable change. Turn over to Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I believe we looked at this verse last Sunday evening. Uh, It was some point uh, uh, last week. Uh, I can't remember if it was the morning or evening. But I want to look at it again because I, I just want to help us to see that when we live in this system of God's grace, then what we find is that our life becomes radically changed. I opened up the message last week by uh, talking about how radical God's grace is. And if you want an example of how radical God's grace is, look no further than the Apostle Paul. 
He was on his way to put people, Christians, in prison and have them killed for their faith. And after he was struck down by a light from heaven and he confessed his sins and, and or rather put his faith in Christ, rather put his faith in Christ. You're talking about a 180. God's grace completely changed this man. And as zealous as he was against Christianity, he became even more zealous for it. Look at Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. What did he do? What, what did he do? He was so radically changed by God's grace that he gave up his entire life to do nothing more than just preach the unsearchable riches of the grace of God to anyone and everyone that listened. Look, if you were offended by the gospel, then you just stayed away from Paul. You didn't go near him. If you were a relative and you were uh, against the gospel, there really wasn't a lot of room to have a relationship with Paul. Because to be around him was to be around the gospel. That's just who he was. He gave it everywhere he went, and it was a two-edged sword. He went back to Jerusalem at the end of his life against the counsel of many Christian people. And because he was so zealous toward the gospel, he ended up sealing his own fate to be killed. It, it changed, it radically changed his life. And we as Christians are commanded to see the same change. Turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. In verse number 18. By the way, if you notice on the screen, we try to put all the verses of that point under there. When we get through one passage, you can go ahead and look up and see the next verses. You can feel free to turn over there and go ahead and get ahead so that you're ready. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Paul, Peter finishes out his last letter that he would write prior to his death uh, with uh, this uh, verse, the last verse of the book. But grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory. There's that glory again, both now and forever. Amen. If you want to really bring glory to Jesus, then you've got to live your life by grace. You've got to completely surrender to this system. I'm not going to preach any more of last week's sermon other than what I've just said. I would really encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's sermons in their entirety, to go back and listen to them because it is radically different than the type of preaching I grew up under. It is radically different. It isn't that they never talked about God's grace. The emphasis just wasn't put there quite like we looked at last week through Scripture. So I'd really encourage you to have a better understanding of this sermon to go back on YouTube or on our church's website and get yourself caught up by listening to the AM and PM sermon. Let's move on and get specific about giving this morning. Number two, notice two systems of giving. Two systems of giving. Letter A, notice the law's requirement. The law's requirement. Turn over to Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. And so if you get to Matthew, it's just one book over to the left. Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 8. Malachi 3 and verse number 8. Now, let me, uh, while you're turning there, let me share something with the church here. Since I've become the pastor here, I have taken one week in the fall... And I have preached about financial contributions to the church. And outside of that, I have left the topic alone. This is, if you're visiting here today, please understand, I don't talk about finances and giving. I hardly ever talk about it. You picked a, a, you picked a Sunday to come, and it hap- it's happening this week. But this is not a topic I, I, I preach on very often. Some of you may notice I didn't preach on this in the fall. 
And some of you may have wondered what happened to that message. I'm sure you all missed that sermon, right? You all love when I when I preach on this topic. Um, I didn't preach on it in the fall because I was doing some spiritual inventory on the topic. And I was trying to what I was doing was studying the Bible and studying out the topic of tithing and, and giving. Furthermore, some of you may have noticed that I have strayed away from the word tithing during the collecting of the offerings. And I have just been using the word offerings. And I'm going to share with you today why I've been doing that, why I didn't preach the sermon in the fall, why I waited till uh, late winter uh, to, to preach this sermon. I've been doing a lot of studying and praying and really studying on this topic is what's brought this series of sermons on the grace of God about. Now, um, let me just say before I get any further, I am not going to stand up here today and completely denounce tithing. Uh, I think that 10 percent is a great benchmark for what uh, a person should give to the Lord. Uh, but uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll get into that to a, in, in just a moment. But I want to make sure everyone is laid at ease. I'm not going to preach against tithing or tell people that tithing is, uh, is not for New Testament Christians. But I want to just show you, maybe put the emphasis on a different syllable this morning and show you, you know, what the Bible says about giving in general. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, uh, saith the Lord, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall uh, not be room enough to receive it. Turn over to Numbers 18.24. The Old Testament law was that the Israelites were required to give 10% of all of their goods to the Lord. 10% of their crops, if they had currency, 10% of their currency, uh, 10% of, of their cattle, 10% of everything was given uh, to the Levitical priesthood so that they could live. 10% of the land was given up. And so this was an Old Testament law given to specifically the Jews. Uh, after the law was given, that was when it was mandated by God and commanded by God for them uh, to follow this, that they had uh, they had to give a tithe. And we see in Numbers 18, 24, actually 24, 26, and 28, all talk about who it is that receives the offering. Look at verse, or the tithe. Look at verse 24. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an eve offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites, the Levites, that's the priesthood, to inherit. Therefore, I have said unto them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. They shall have no inheritance. So the Israel or the, 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 the children of Levi or the Levites or the tribe of Levi or the Levitical priesthood, they were not given a, a land to live on. OK, they were to live on a portion of land of the other folks. And then they were to live off of the tithes. That were brought in the 10 percent that was brought in and verse 24, verse 26 and verse 28 all indicate that this 10 percent was going to keep this uh, this portion of Israel alive and moving. So in the Old Testament, under the law, we're given the command to tithe. 
Letter B, notice, Grace's request. Grace's request. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought that I just shared with you. And we're going to come back to it in just a moment. And I want to kind of walk you down uh, another path. And, and, and so I've, I've walked you down a path of the law's requirement and I got you to a point. Now I'm going to bring you down another path with Grace's request. And when I finish this, it's going to start in two different places. When I finish this, we're going to tie the two together. Turn over to Matthew 5, verse 17. Here we find Jesus preaching to those who had grown fond of him. These were his early disciples. There's a whole bunch of them gathered, not just the twelve, there's a whole bunch of them gathered. And he preaches the most famous sermon uh, that's ever been preached. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Powerful sermon. And uh, completely, totally uh, just rich uh, with, with more truth than a, a preacher could probably preach in a lifetime. But look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus is up there and he's preaching. And I can just see, I can feel the tension in the crowd. Folks are looking around at each other like, who is this guy? He is preaching with an authority that the scribes and Pharisees, they just don't preach with. And his message is different. And they're thinking, is he coming to do away with our laws? Look at verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So a foundation of right and wrong, of morality, was laid in the Old Testament with the law. Jesus came along and he built on top of that foundation, grace. You could call the foundation laid in the Old Testament, truth. And you could call the building built by Jesus on top of the foundation of truth, grace. You cannot have a house without the framework on top of the foundation. And you won't have a house for very long if all you have is the framework and no foundation. Both are necessary for a house to function. You must have the truth and you must have the grace. These churches that are grace only and never preach the truth, uh, what are they? They're a framework with no foundation. These churches that are all in your face and law and they've been called legalistic churches, they are, they are foundational churches with no framework. They must have both to be a building. So the law was laid and, and in this idea of giving, it was a 10% quota. Grace comes along and it's going to request a different standard. Look at Matthew 5 verse 21. And we see that God, or rather Jesus, raises the bar in this area of morality and behavior. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Well, that's in the Bible. That's part of the Ten Commandments. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. He goes on to say in verse 22 that if you as much hate your brother, you are a murderer. You are a killer. So you see how grace is requesting a much higher standard than the law required? And down in verse 28, it was said in times of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I believe that's verse 27. I'm paraphrasing. 28, But I say unto you that if a man look upon a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So the, the, the laws here, grace comes along and requests a higher standard. Well, how about this area of giving? How about this area of giving? Turn over to Acts 4. Acts 4. Now, This would have been, if I could go back to a time in church history and just observe and be a part of it. And we now have over 2,000 years of church history. God is, Jesus Christ established a church 
there in Acts 1 and 2. And the church has now been around for 2,000 years. And if in this 2,000 time span I could go back to any one moment and live through it or see it or be a part of it, it would be the early church. I want you to... I want you to, uh, before I read this passage, I really want you to get the essence of the emotion and the feel and the vibe of that early church. Jerusalem had just seesawed back and forth on who Jesus was. Palm Sunday, they lay down the branches. Remember? Hosanna to the highest. Seven days later, he's been killed. He's been mocked. Right? Right? He had stones thrown at him. He was arrested. And where were the people who laid down the palm branches to stand up for him? They were in hiding. Now he's risen from the dead. He's walked the earth for 40 days. And now he's in front of 500 people. He's ascended back to heaven. Jerusalem is, is dry wood ready for a large fire. Okay? And... The apostles and 120 other people, 120 people total, gather in the upper room and the Spirit of God falls on them. Come back tonight. We're going to talk about that. The Spirit of God falls on them and Pentecost happens. 3,000 people get saved and baptized. And then just a couple of verses later, or just a short, uh, a couple of passages later, 5,000 people trust Christ and are baptized into the church. Uh, uh, historians of, of this church era believe that the church of Jerusalem, under the hostility of the chief priests and the scribes and the religious uh, structure of that day, that believe that even with that in place, the church grew in a hunt up to a, 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 in excess of a hundred thousand in attendance. Boy, the church is growing uh, not not only week after week, but day after day, an explosion in growth, and and and, and the church is growing so fast they're having growing pains and they're having. Having to select deacons to minister to the needs of the widows that are going unmet and, and those that are uh, suffering and, and, and people are really feeling loved by the grace of God. Not only is Jerusalem feeling excited about this church, but they're looking back over their shoulder in recent history and they're remembering that Jesus Christ died for them. Do you remember the emotion of the day you got saved? Now imagine if you'd been alive when he had died and risen again. Imagine how more amped up you'd be. Imagine how much more loved you'd be by His grace. Imagine how much more profound the grace of Jesus Christ would affect and alter your life. Boy, God's grace was had, had been felt in such an exponential way in their lives, they were overwhelmed by it, and they, they had that grace like a bucket truck of water dumped all over them, and they had to turn around and give it back. Look at Acts 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said uh, uh, any of them that ought of the things that he possessed was his own. But they all they they had all things common and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. If you mark in your Bibles, underline that phrase, great grace, great grace was upon them all. Now, they're living in this grace system. They're overwhelmed by the grace of God. And what is God's grace going to get them to do? What does it affect first? Look at verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands 
or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who was by the apostles, uh, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation or exhortation or giving a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet. These folks were so overwhelmed by God's grace that they took their excess properties and they sold them. They took the sum of the money and they brought them to the church house and they gave them to the leaders of the church and they said, here is the money. You use this to meet the needs of those who cannot, who do not have. You use this to meet the needs of those that are hurting and down and out. And that, that was the response. They gave as they had received. They had received the eternal gift of salvation and by reflex, they gave what they could back to the Lord. Turn over to Luke 6 verse 38. Luke 6 verse 38. And I want to show you how that this idea of grace giving is a cycle. It is a cycle. You cannot outgive God. You cannot do it. If you give to the Lord of your time and you're doing it with the right motive and you're doing it uh, with the right uh, 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 resource, God is going to give back to you energy that would have otherwise not been there. If you give to the Lord financially, uh, trusting Him as He leads you to give, He's going to give back to you. Look at Luke 6.38. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, or that ye give out, with all it shall be measured to you again. You cannot outgive God. And you know who gives into someone else's uh, bosom, that bosom or that inner pocket? That, that pocket is is given to by those uh, who have an open heart and God can just channel money right through them. I, I saw a preacher one time illustrate what he called a silent sermon and he, he, he showed how the holding his hands up and asking God for money and, and then he, with his hands, he grabbed what looked like money and he shoved it in his pockets and he got a smug smile on his face and he walked away. And then a little bit later he came back and he put his hands up like this and he did this again. And then he did this and walked away. He said, contrast that with a man who comes to the Lord with his hands out. And he gets from the Lord. And he turns around and he gives to others. And then he goes back to the Lord and he says, can I have some more? And he gets that. And he gives to others. And you know what? Give and it shall be given unto you. Press down, shaken together, running over, show men given to your bosom. And I have watched over and over again in my, in my life as I have been more generous with what God has given to me. God, uh, as I have been generous with what I have, God has replaced that and over and over again. Turn over to Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 6. Second Corinthians is where we began this morning, and we're going to look at this passage quite thoroughly the rest of the sermon here. Second Corinthians nine, verse six. Speaking in terms of giving, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. You know what that means? 
If you're selfish, people are going to treat you selfish. Look here. And he which soweth bountifully, or in abundance, shall reap also bountifully. As you sow, you shall reap. As you sow, you shall reap. Now, the law says Christians are to give, or rather, the law says 10%. Grace comes along and says, man, if you'll open up your heart and your mind, and you'll open up your prayer, I can funnel so much more than 10% through your pockets. And I can see my work move forward. Number one, our surrender to grace living. Number two, two systems of giving. Number three, our spirit toward giving. Our spirit toward giving. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 7. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Look here, talk about our spirit. Not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. God loveth a cheerful giver. My father used to, um, as an assistant pastor growing up, he used to get up and do, have the ushers come forward as an assistant pastor and encourage the church to give and, and whatnot. That was his part in the service. And he would often say that word cheerful is the same word translated into our modern day English as hilarious. God loveth a hilarious giver. And as you're putting the money in the plate, you ought to be so joyed that you get to give to the Lord that you just almost break out laughing because you're so happy about it. All right. And listen, when we talk about giving again, I want to make sure we understand we're not just talking about giving money as you're serving in your Sunday school class or on that bus route or in the nursery or whatever area it is, singing in the choir, whatever area it is, that you do it with a joyful, gleeful, happy, cheerful, hilarious spirit. I get to serve God. He saved me. He poured His grace on me, not only for my eternality, but in every area of my life this week. And I get to turn around and give back to God. And that just puts a smile on our face. Our spirit toward giving. Uh, some of you here today, you serve in the ministries around here. How's your spirit about it? Is it all? Oh, I gotta go. I got nursery duty again. I wish some of the other ladies in this church would sign up. Wouldn't have to be in there so much. Cheryl, you're allowed to feel that way, but you're the only one. Okay. <laughs> Cheryl's our nursery director. Um. Oh, bus route again. Those kids stink. Oh, what's your attitude? If that's your attitude, it's because you have lost focus on how gracious God is to you and your want to give back to him. Let me give you quickly here an A to B and we'll finish up the sermon. Letter A, faith, not force. Faith, not force. Look at Second Corinthians 9, 7. The beginning of the verse. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. How do you purpose in your heart what it is that you're to give? Well, you've got to walk by faith. You've got to walk by faith. You know, there have been times in my Christian life I've gotten down on my knees and said, Lord, if you'll, if you'll give to me, I'll give it back. There have even been times where I've said, Lord, I'm going to put this money in the plate. I need to pay a bill because I know you're impressing in my heart to do that. And that means I'm going to have to come to the end of the month and you're going to have to send some extra money my way. To, to give that. And that is a faith point that I've grown to.
Hebrews 11, 6 says this, it says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. If you put that money check in the plate so that the gospel can be propagated around this city and the globe and you're not doing it by faith, then my friends, it's sin. It's sin. You say, well, then should I not give? No, you should give by faith. You should give by faith. If you're teaching a Sunday school class or working a bus route, or even if you're working on staff here at our church, whatever you do, if you're a support staff or assistant pastor, and you're not doing that by faith, if I'm not pastoring by faith, that's sin. That's sin. If I sit down to counsel a couple that's having a hard time in their marriage, or a person who's just distraught about life, and I'm not doing that by faith, it's sin. We've got to give by faith, not force. Not force. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7 with me again. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Can I tell you that for a good chunk of my Christian life, I would put my tithe check in the plate and I would do it gritting my teeth? Am I alone here this morning? Because uh, I have to. Here it is. If I don't, God's going to curse me. I'm going to be labeled as robbing God. Here it is. And I may not have said that outwardly, but I felt that way inwardly. There have been times where I put that in the plate and said, that wasn't by faith, that was by force. Now, I want you to hear me, what I'm about to say here. Okay, please. This is really what I want you to get out of the message this morning. Whether it's money, time, or energy, talents, God would rather you give less than 10% and give it by faith. Then give 10% and give it out of necessity and obligation. I lived under this um, false premise for many years of my Christian life as a young Christian. That since I can't give 10% and pay the bills, and I'm disobedient at 9%, then why give anything? I lived under that premise for a long time. It's better that I, if I'm going to be disobedient at 9%, I might as well just be disobedient at 0%. And you know, my friends, I, I, can't, I can't believe that I'm the only one here today that has felt that way at some point in my Christian life. Or that there aren't people here today that feel that way. You may be at a place right now where coming into a church like this and you're hearing that you need to part with 10% of your income. And listen, if you grew up in church your whole life and you've heard that number, whatever, you're used to hearing it, it's no big deal. But if you're here today and, and you just started coming to church or you're new to church and you've heard 10% of my income, that's a lot of money. What? I had one man in the church tell me that he got saved and married to a Christian lady shortly after that. He started coming to, to church here and, and his wife was like, we've got to give 10%. She's like, he's like, 10%? And he said, the first several times I put that check in the plate, it hurt me. It hurt to do it because it was not a place he was at in his faith. Let me encourage you here to, this morning. If you're not able, if you, when I say able, you are not You've not grown enough in your faith where you can give 10% to the Lord. Pick a percentage that you can give by faith and give it. And then pray that the Lord will grow your faith. Pray that the Lord will grow your faith. You may only be able to give 3% or 5% or 7%. You may only be able to give 2%. Pick a number and say, Lord, grow my faith. And as he grows your faith, you give according to that. You allow him to give. Let her be his glory not our gloating. 
His glory, not our gloating. Look down at verse number eight. And God is able. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Part of the way that uh, tithes and offerings have been preached for so many years is that we've got to give sacrificially. Now, I'm not against sacrificial giving if God encourages you to give sacrificially. The Lord moves in your heart and says, I want you to put your entire paycheck in the offering next week. If the Lord moves in your heart to do that, you need to do that. Can I be honest? God's never moved in my heart to do that. Not once. Maybe that's because I wasn't walking with him real close at times in my life. But even when I have been close to the Lord, he's never said, put the whole next check in the offering plate. But if he did, I ought to be willing to do it. Here's the problem with giving sacrificially. Here's a problem that can arise out of giving sacrificially. We say, I'm going to cut coffee out for a month. And that five bucks, uh, five bucks I've been spending at Starbucks on coffee every morning, I'm going to collect that together and I'm going to give it to the Lord. You get down to the end of the month and you know what you do? You go, I went a whole month without drinking coffee and I put that in the offering plate. Who's getting the glory? You are. Is that grace giving? No, that's boasting. His glory, not our gloating. Hey, I would rather you go to the Lord and get on your knees and say, Lord, if you give me a pay raise, right now all my money is, is, is set to pay bills and I don't have a whole lot of extra to cover my bills. But Lord, if you give me a pay raise, I will take a percentage of that raise and I will give it to you. On top of what I'm already giving to the Lord. Lord, if you'll allow extra money to come my way, I will, I will earmark a certain percentage of that and give that to the Lord. I talked about my brother who worked a job driving a bus and he wasn't getting any tips or very few tips. And so he went to God on his knees and he said, Lord, if you'll send tips my way as a bus driver of this coach bus, I will put every penny of it in the offering plate toward missions. The very next day he went out and drove a bus, he got a $200 tip. And the tips just kept coming and coming and coming. God opened up the doorways and the tips just started pouring into his pocket in spite of his bad driving. And he is a bad driver. (laughs) And he kept giving and giving to missions. Because God said, that young man is willing to let me channel money through him so the gospel can be preached around the globe. And because of that, he's going to take and give I'm in. Let me give you one last point. No sub points. Number four, notice the surety of God's provision. You say, Pastor, my faith just isn't there yet. And I'd say to you, I understand growing in your faith is a journey. It takes faith to get saved. And then it takes our faith to grow in the Lord. But as your faith grows, let me show you what awaits you. And the more you give to the Lord, the more he will give back to you. Look at verse 11. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness. Being enriched. These are where I have underlined in my Bible. Being enriched, all bountifulness, that's underlined, which causes us, to, uh, causes through us thanksgiving to God for the administration of the service, not only supplieth the want, I've got that underlined, of the saints, but is abundant, is abundant also by many thanksgiving 
uh, thanksgivings unto God. As you give to the Lord, you understand his grace. You're surrendered to his grace. You're receiving his grace. You understand everything that's good in your life comes because of God's grace. You turn around and you give to God, give to others graciously, give to the needs of the church so they can propagate the gospel around the globe uh, and around town. What does God do? He gives back to you. And again, I would repeat that phrase. You cannot outgive God. Now, I want to be careful to make sure that I don't come across as a health and wealth preacher. I'm not telling you today that if you'll drop money in the plate, God's going to make you rich tomorrow. But I will tell you this. God will supply all of your need if you give to him in obedience. And not only obedience, but you give to him as you have been affected by his grace. Look around at our great country. What do you see? You see bountifulness like no other country has. You see, you see wants supplied, not only needs, but wants supplied. You see it in abundance and you see all of these describe our great land. You know why? Because as a country several hundred years ago, we planted the seeds of grace giving. And as a country today, we're reaping the benefit from it. Do you know why we live so well? Because as a country, we've been so charitable for so long. We've given and we get. And we give and we get. And America is still a charitable country. Do you know that not only applies to a country, that implies to you as an individual. Are you more concerned about getting or giving? Why do Baptist Church cannot operate? The light bill cannot be paid. The buses cannot move forward. Bus ministry cannot move forward. Uh, the, the salaries that are that are only modest at best, uh, and in some cases not even modest, they can't be paid. The missionary checks can't be sent out every month. The gospel tracts can't be printed unless God's people receive grace and turn around and give grace. Our ministries cannot operate unless we give of our time the way God has given it to us. Our children will not be taught and raised right if we don't take the spiritual gifts we been given and give them back to the Lord. How about it this morning? Are you not only living by grace, but are you giving by grace? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Lord, thank you for a chance to hop in the Bible, study it, understand it. Lord, I'm afraid too oftentimes the we must tithe type sermons discourages someone who lives on a very tight income from giving it all. And the we must give 10% sermons limit those who could give so much more if they would give by grace. Lord, there's something in this sermon for everyone. But most importantly, you gave your life on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life. Help us, Lord, today to open our hearts and understand that if we've not yet received you, that free gift of salvation... That was purchased to redeem us from the iniquity of our sin, the shortcomings of our sin, that we have no hope of heaven. Lord, if there's one here today that has not put their faith and trust in you for salvation. Lord, today, may they do that. May they turn to you. Help us, Lord, to live by grace and give by grace in Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.